Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be dealing specifically with verses 4 and 5 today, but I, I want to start by reading from verse 1. Get a little bit of context, uh, context, context, and a little recap from last week. So let's start reading Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that is in front of us right now. And I'm reminded, Lord, that as we get into it right now, this is about the 157th time that we'll study the word together on a Sunday. And Lord, we ask that you would make it so alive to us today. Your word is living and it's active. It is inerrant and infallible and authoritative. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and work through the Holy Word of God to excite in us a holy boldness concerning the days in which we live. That you would do a work in us, that you would align our hearts and our minds, our ideologies, the way we spend our time, that you would align that with your Word today. And the moment in history in which we live, Lord, come, move, anoint this Bible study. Lord, you know I feel unworthy and unable. So please take my thoughts and author them. Anoint my words for your glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom, God. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we focus in on verse 4, we're going to be talking about the rapture of the church and the second coming. If you don't know what the rapture is, don't worry about it. You will at the end of this hour. And you also have a good working knowledge of the second coming. If you still, after this Bible study, have some questions or want to know more on the topics, go to our website where I've done several teachings on each of them, but more in-depth teachings. Uh, The time today is a little prohibitive, but we've done classes on these things. So if you go to our website, the messages segment, you can search the messages by topic, type in prophecy, and you'll find a bunch of messages on the rapture and the second coming. You can go a little further, then we'll go today. But as we get into chapter 3 of the book of Colossians, it's important for you to realize as a student of the book that we've turned a corner now. The first two chapters of the book are primarily doctrinal, theological. Paul telling us what right theology and doctrine is. And then the second two chapters, into which now we've begun to dip, are mostly application. The application of the theological truths learned in the previous two chapters. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's epistles, you know that this is his normal mode of operation. He generally does that. He'll spend the first part of the epistle laying out true and correct doctrine, and then he'll tell us in the second half how to live in light of that. So the next several weeks, as we finish off the book of Colossians, will be how to live in light of these wonderful truths. Uh, I say the next few weeks, but it was a year ago today that we started the book of Colossians. And we got through two chapters, so we'll see what the Lord does. But in the first three verses here of chapter 3 that we touched on lightly last week, we see that we are told to be seeking the things above 
where Christ is, and to be setting our minds on the things above. To be seeking and setting is to be the mode of the Christian. Seeking and setting, seeking the things above, setting our mind on those very things. We are to be, as Christians really, heavenly minded, aren't we? I mean, it makes sense. The book of Philippians says that our citizenship is in heaven, not on earth. And so it makes sense that our hearts and our minds would be in heaven. I love the way that the psalmist described this in Psalm 27, verse 4. He said, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. That's the idea that's being relayed here. And I just love the way that the psalmist says it. There's one thing that I'm asking And I'm seeking after this. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. I just want to stay where the Lord's presence is. I want to marinate in his glory, so to speak. I want to cultivate time in his word and in his presence. And among his people is what the psalmist says there. And it's such a right attitude. Now the Apostle Paul says the same thing. But in a reflection of the Apostle Paul, he says it with less poetic language and a little more blunt and to the point. He says in Romans 8, 6, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Very Pauline, just straight and to the point and kind of free from touchy-feely. But I dig the Psalms gig, you know. Just, Lord, I just want to marinate in your presence. I just want to be in and about the things of the Lord. And that's to be our heart and our mind and our attitude and the tone and tenor of our life. We as Christians are to seek things above where Christ is and set our mind on those things. But how daily and practically do we do that? Well, I gave you three ways to do that last week. I said the only way that I've found to continually do that, and it's absolutely scriptural, is to spend time in the presence of God, spend time in the Word of God, and spend time in the ear of God. That is to say, spend time in worship and in intimacy with the Lord. Cultivate that in your life. Spend time reading the Bible and studying the Bible and spend time in the ear of God by all means. Spend time praying, talking to the Lord, interceding for others. I have found in my life that when I commit myself to these things, then my heart and my mind are set on the things that are above. I'm heavenly minded as opposed to being totally set on and consumed with the things that are on the earth. Now, how many of us would confess that it's easy to be consumed with the things that are on the earth? A lot of liars in here, huh? It's so easy to be consumed with those things because we're so visual and visceral and we like everything to be tangible. You know what I mean? And the Bible says, hey, bro, you got to walk by faith, not by sight. And faith is a hope of things not seen. But, but we want to see everything. We want to be able to touch it. And we're so carnal in that way. But not all of spirituality is in that realm necessarily. It manifests itself in that realm. But we have to be able to go beyond the temporal, beyond the material, beyond what is always immediately tangible. And if we don't cultivate time in the presence of God, time in the Word of God, and time in the ear of God, it's just so easy to get totally consumed with worldly things. And if you were to stop and take stock of those things, you'd say, this is stupid. I'm all consumed with this thing. It's going to burn. 
I mean, this thing is meaningless. It's going to rust. It's going to rot. It's going to burn. It has no eternal value. I'm all wrapped up in it. Or I'm all caught up in this silliness and these trivial little things and this backbiting, this and that and the other. But when we get free from that is when we seek and set our mind on the things that are above. And two other ways to do that besides spending time in the presence, time in the word, and time in the ear of God is to spend time with the people of God. So important. You need to, as a Christian, develop intimate, vital, powerful Christian relationships. Now, it's important that you have relationships with people that are not Christians. Very important. Because we are the ambassadors of Christ Jesus. And they're going to see Jesus through our lives. A little terrifying, isn't it? But they need to see us fail and repent and receive grace and mercy and then walk in victory in the provision of the cross. They need to see us manifest the the gifts of the Lord and the leading of the Lord and the blessings of God and the power of God and the love of God. And they need to hear from your mouth the gospel of Jesus Christ. So really important that you have, that you care for, that you cultivate relationships with non-Christians. But for your spiritual well-being, you must give attention to your Christian relationships. You must niche yourself into the larger body of Christ. God is not cool with Lone Ranger Christians. He simply did not design it that way. He designed us to be a body knit together, the New Testament tells us, several times. And so we're told in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as the day, and we'll talk about the day in a moment, as the day draws near. It's a command of the Bible that we get into each other's lives, that we're involved, that we're knit together. And the last thing I would say for seeking and setting your mind on things above is to spend time in the things of God. The things of God. So the presence of God, the word of God, the ear of God, the people of God, and the things of God. That means that you're investing in God's kingdom. Somewhere, some way, at some time, you say this to the Lord. Lord, what do you want to do today? Have you ever said that? Lord, what do you want to do today? My day off is Mondays. And uh, quite frankly, after Sunday, I'm wiped out. And my wife, who's over there, she's gorgeous, don't look. My wife is so wonderful to me. She loves me with the most incredible love. Every Monday morning, I sleep in. It's the only time I sleep in. I sleep in, and I wake up, and I'm trying to be a good husband. Honey, what do you want to do today? You know, and she says, no, sweetheart. Whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do, and it's not lip service, she means it. Honey, whatever you want to do, and it just blesses me. It just speaks of some just wonderful relationship. Now, shouldn't there be a time in our relationship with the Lord when we say, Lord, what do you want to do? Because we're always telling the Lord what we want to do. He doesn't even need to ask us. We're always telling him, Lord, I want to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, B. But do you ever stop to say, hey, Lord, what do you want to do? What do you want to do today? What do you want to do with my life? What do you want to do with my family, my friends, my church, my coworkers, the people that are within my sphere of influence? Lord, what do you want to do? If you'll begin to ask, he'll begin to talk. Because the Bible says that his thoughts about you are more than every piece of sand on every beach in the world. He's got a lot to say if you would just ask. Now, cultivating then this heavenly mindset leads us into verse 4, which is where the heavens and the earth connect. 
Verse 4 is a culmination of these things. It's where the heaven and the earth connect. And no longer do we have to set our hearts and our minds in the heavenlies. We will be in the heavenlies. Verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Christ being revealed... Us being revealed with him, important word, and in glory, very important concept. There are two times where this takes place in the future. Two times where Christ is revealed, you and I, the church, the bride, are also revealed with him and yet we're in glory. Something has changed. These two events are known as the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ. The rapture of the church, which we'll explain, and the second coming of Jesus Christ, which we will investigate. Now, it's important that you understand that these are separate and distinct events. They're different in the way that they unfold. So we'll just look at one key text for each of them. First, we're going to look at a key text concerning the second coming, and then we'll look at a key text concerning the rapture, and we'll look at the differences between the two, and then we'll discern when the rapture might take place and so how we ought to live. So let's look first at the second coming. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, we're going to see the second coming of Jesus Christ. We start in heaven. If you read verse 1, It says, after these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Okay, so we're getting a glimpse into heaven here. Let's start reading now in verse 7. It says, let us rejoice. There's a group of people, and they're saying together, we ought to be partying right now. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Now, the us, the we, here in heaven, who is that? It's us and we. It's you and I. It's the church. And here we are in heaven. And if you follow the book of Revelation through chronologically, we're at the end of the tribulation period right now, just as the battle of Armageddon is unfolding. And you and I are pictured here in heaven. And we're attending an event. And the event is called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Now, this is a cool gig. This is the wedding feast. This is when the bride is united with the bridegroom. The bride being the church of Jesus Christ. The bridegroom being Jesus Christ. And this is the reception, so to speak. This is the party. This is a celebration. This is a consummation. This is a glorious event. And by the way, I want you to note there's food in heaven. I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. I love food, I love Jesus. You put the two together, it's good times. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here we are united, the bride of Christ, the church, bought with the blood, united with the Lamb that was slain from before the foundations of the world. And after this marriage supper, this celebration takes place, something incredible occurs now in verse 11. Verse 11 says, And I saw heaven open." 
And behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ. Amen. We know who it is. It's the Word of God. It's Jesus. And he's on a white horse, and he's coming back. And it just seems from the description that he's not coming the same way he came the first time. The first time, according to Zechariah 9.9, he came lowly and seated on a donkey. He came as a suffering servant to give his life as a ransom for many. This time, he's coming on a big white horse. And he's coming as a king of kings and the lord of lords. And, and there's blood on his robe. And he's coming as a conqueror. Hey, it's gnarly, man. The second coming is gnarly. As we see it unfold, it's a heavy gig. The Lord came the first time and gave His life so that people would get saved. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He then gave birth to the church by giving the church His Holy Spirit. He then gave the gospel and the ministry of reconciliation and gifts to the church. And the church went into all the nations preaching the gospel. And for 2,000 years, people have had every opportunity to get saved. God is so merciful that in Revelation chapter 14, during the tribulation period, he appoints an angel to fly through the midheaven, preaching the eternal gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Everybody hears it. There's an angel flying around in heaven in the tribulation saying, by the way, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Repent and follow him. But there are those, and we'll see it in the book of Revelation in a few minutes, who refuse to repent throughout history and in the future. And there's nothing left for them other than the wrath of God. God has extended His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness and He did everything possible upon the cross. But if you reject the mercy of God, there's nothing left but the judgment and the wrath of God. Now, He must judge because He's a just God. He can't turn a blind eye, He can't just wink His eye, and He can't sweep it under the rug. That would make Him unjust. He's a just God. He must judge. And when He comes again, He's coming in judgment. Came the first time with mercy. This time he's coming with judgment. But I want you to notice who's with him. Verse 14 of Revelation 19. It says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now who is this? This is you and I. According to verse 8, it's us who are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And we're coming on little caballo blancos, little white horses. Jesus is on the big horse and we're coming together on little horses with the Lord. We had a party in heaven and now we're coming to the earth. And he's coming as the king to establish his kingdom from Jerusalem for a thousand years. He will rule and reign and you and I with him. This is cool stuff, huh? Continue to read. Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. 
And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. Now, supper of God, this is different than what we saw in heaven, the supper of the Lamb. You'll notice that in verse 18. In order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. This is Jesus interrupting the battle of Armageddon. We see in verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. We are told in Zechariah, the second to last book in the Old Testament, in both chapter 12 and in chapter 14, that in the last days, every nation would be gathered against Jerusalem. We can follow and discern from those texts and from the book of Revelation that the battle of Armageddon is all the nations in the world coming under the leadership of the Antichrist against Jerusalem. Of course, to thwart the promises of God, because God said he would be the deliverer of Yisrael perpetually forever. So in the midst of that, the Lord comes on a big cavallo blanco, a big white horse. We come on little horses, and he comes, and as he comes, they turn from moving against Jerusalem in the Valley of Armageddon, where we will go in our next Israel tour. It's an actual, literal, physical place. They turn their attention from that against the Lord. And it says in verse 20, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is the Antichrist and all those who are in rebellion to Jesus Christ. And with just a word of his mouth, Jesus defeats them. We'll be coming behind the Lord going, yeah, Lord, get him. And we won't have to do anything. The Lord just, boom, with a word of his mouth. And the false prophet and the Antichrist, under the lake of fire and victory. And we're told then in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, that Jesus then sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives that it splits in two, half moves to the north, half to the south, and then he establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem. And in that day, the name of the Lord is the only name, Zechariah 14 says. Now that's the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's not all of it, that's just one snapshot. It's spoken of from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. You can't be a Christian and not understand that Jesus Christ is coming again. It is paramount in our faith. He is coming again. It's a basic, core, essential doctrine of the historic Christian faith. Now, having noted some distinctives of the second coming, let's now look at the rapture in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Go there if you would. Start going toward the beginning of your Bible. Get out of Revelation. Go past 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, 2 Peter, 1 Peter, James, Hebrews, Philemon, Titus, Timothy, and then you'll get to Thessalonians. Or it's right after Colossians. That might be easier. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now we have before us in 1 Thessalonians 4 a key text on the rapture of the church. This is not the only text in the New Testament, but a key one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll start reading in verse 13. 
Paul says, We do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. A little bit of context here. Sleep here is a first century Christian euphemism for dying, or a nice way of saying, uh, euphemism means a nice way of saying something. Uh, saying the Christian was asleep was a nice way of saying they died. Uh, the, the Christian community didn't really believe that they were dead because there was a promise of the resurrection. But this community of believers that Paul taught for a few weeks after having established the church so believed that the rapture of the church could happen at any moment that they thought that Christians who died then missed going to heaven. They died. They weren't going to be a part of the rapture. Jesus Christ coming for the church. So they thought that those dead Christians sleeping, so to speak, missed the whole thing. And Paul says, whoa, 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 that's wrong. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so he goes to explain. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do we? Yes, we do. Even so, or just as sure, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus or Christians who have died. What in the world is he talking about? Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, meaning the Lord told this to Paul directly, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Okay. So Paul says here by the word of the Lord, that there is a day still yet future where we will hear the trump of God and the shout of the archangel. And at that moment, the dead in Christ rise first, meaning their physical bodies. Paul says in another epistle in Corinthians, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. So when the Christian dies, their spirit goes to be with the Lord. But the resurrection of their physical body is reserved for this day. Now, the physical resurrection of every believer is a core Christian doctrine. We believe that every believer will be resurrected to glory. By the way, everyone that rejects Jesus will be also resurrected to judgment. We read about that in the book of Revelation. But this is the moment still in the future where the trump sounds and the voice is heard and the dead in Christ are raised, their bodies, glorified bodies now. If they were cremated, it comes together in glory. If they were eaten by a shark, it comes together in glory. If they've been buried, eaten by worms, whatever, it doesn't matter, the Lord works it out. But those who are already dead, now their bodies are resurrected, united with their spirits, and they're in the glorified state which is necessary for citizenship in heaven. It says it this way in the book of 1 Corinthians, this perishable must put on imperishable. This corruptible must put on incorruptible. And even as Jesus rose from the dead and was given a glorified body, so we too shall have a physical resurrection and be glorified. Now it happens for all Christians who have died in history past at this moment. The trump of God, the shout of Michael the archangel. Now look what happens after those dead bodies are raised and united with their spirits. 
It says in verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We who are alive and remain. The Bible teaches that there will be a generation of people who when the Lord comes at his rapture, this, at the rapture, are still alive and then never taste death, that means. The only religion in the world that says there will be some people that never taste death. Those who are alive when the rapture happens. In a moment at the trump of God, Michael the archangel, in the twinkling of an eye, just that fast, bam, we're caught up to meet the Lord in the sky. We meet all those dead folks that we love, those who died in Christ. We meet them in the sky. We're given our glorified bodies. We're changed. We're translated. We're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. This is incredible. If the Bible didn't say it, I would never buy it. You know, but the Bible's just never been wrong on any prophetic thing. It's always right. There's been more incredible things, you know. There's this whole virgin birth gig, this death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. That's pretty gnarly. But the Lord is always true in what he says. You know, people think Christians are a little weird. And so we are. This is in no way normal. It is extra normal, extraordinary, unbelievable, incredible. That there is coming a time according to the Bible when we will hear the trump and the voice and we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the sky and then we will always be with the Lord. Now, where do we get the word rapture? It's from that phrase in verse 17, caught up. We translate caught up uh, in English from a Greek word harpazo. So why the word rapture? Well, there was the earlier translation from the Greek into the Latin and the Latin word was raptus. Harpazo in the Greek, raptus in the Latin, caught up or rapture in the English, same idea. It just means to be snatched away violently. In an instant, we're snatched away. It's exactly what that Greek word means, harpazo. Snatched away to meet the Lord in the sky. Now, if you've been paying attention and not dozing off, you've noticed that there are some clear differences between the second coming of Jesus Christ, where he touches down on the earth, and the rapture of the church. You've noticed from the uh, Revelation 19 and from 1 Thessalonians 4 that these cannot possibly be the same event because they're different in the way that they occur and in the way that they unfold. Let's just put up a, a couple points here and distinguish between the two. Concerning the rapture, we see very clearly taught the translation of all believers. That is, all believers are taken into a glorified state. It's talked about again in 1 Corinthians 15, which is part of your homework. Please read that this week. 1 Corinthians 15. So at the rapture, there is a translation taken from the mortal body into glory. The texts that talk about the second coming don't speak of a translation. It's already happened. We were already in Revelation 19 in heaven and in glory. So there's a key difference. Rapture, translation of believers. Second coming, they've already been translated. Secondly, with the rapture, the translated saints go to heaven. It's a movement from earth to heaven, the rapture is. We're caught up. But the second coming is a movement of us from heaven to earth. We're coming back with the Lord for the millennial kingdom. Key difference. Thirdly, in the rapture, Christ comes for 
his own. In the second coming, it's very clear, non-disputable, that he comes with his own. Fourthly, in the rapture, Christ comes in the air. We're caught up and we meet him in the air, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. But it's very clear that in the second coming, he comes to the earth. We see that in Zechariah 12.10, Zechariah 14.4, and numerous other places. In the second coming, Jesus Christ actually touches down on earth and establishes his earthly kingdom. In the rapture, we meet him in the sky. Fifthly, concerning the rapture, it's not explicitly told to us in the Old Testament. It's, um, it's insinuated, it's foreshadowed, it's pictured, and it's illustrated But there's not an explicit text in the Old Testament that speaks of the rapture. There's one in Isaiah that is debatable. It may be explicit. But really where we know that there's not is because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which is your homework, chapter 51, that the rapture is a mystery. He calls it a mystery. Now anytime the New Testament speaks of a mystery, it's simply this. Something that was hidden from past generations and is now being revealed. That is a New Testament definition of a mystery. Something hidden from past generations now being revealed. So it was concealed, foreshadowed, pictured, illustrated, but concealed in the Old Testament. But the second coming, as opposed to the rapture there, is explicitly spoken of in the Old Testament. In fact, hundreds of times the the second coming is explicitly spoken of. And lastly, the rapture is always pictured as being imminent. It is that event about which the Lord says, no man knows the day nor the hour. It will come like a thief in the night. Don't be caught unaware. Don't be caught asleep. Imminent means it could happen at any moment. It could happen at any moment. The rapture is always pictured in Scripture as being imminent. The second coming is not imminent. There are clear things that will happen before the second coming. It's preceded by definite signs. We'll read about a few of them when we go to Mark in a little bit. But for example, if you were in the tribulation period for some horrible reason, you missed the rapture, you didn't repent and let Jesus be your savior, now you missed the gig and you're going in the tribulation period. If you live halfway through the tribulation period, three and a half years into it, it's a seven-year period, you will live to see the Antichrist step into the temple of God and declare himself to be God. Spoken about in 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation 13, Daniel 9, and other places. If you saw with your eyes the Antichrist in the temple declaring himself to be God, you would know from Scripture that there are three and a half years left of the tribulation period. In the biblical uh, years, that is a 360-day year, that would be 1,260 days. So you would be able to calculate to the day when Jesus would come back at the second coming. You'd be able to calculate it to the day if you were in the tribulation. You see, there are clear signs that precede the second coming. The rapture can happen at any moment. That is a core doctrine of the rapture. It is imminent. There's nothing that has to precede it. It can happen now. Ah! I always want that to work. <laughs> Throw me a bone, Lord. Once I want that to work. So it becomes very clear here that the rapture and the second coming are two separate events. Too often Christians blur them. 
They're not aware of how the two are distinguished from one another. They're not even always aware that they're different. And I just think it's, it's a little bit sloppy and a little bit irresponsible to just kind of let them be blurred. The world needs to know what the Bible says. Very clearly, they're separate events. So they're separate in how they unfold. That then begs the question, are they separate as to when they unfold? They're separate in how they unfold. Are they separate as to when they occur? Now, there's three basic views as to when the rapture occurs. The first view, or the first one I'll mention, is that the rapture occurs before the tribulation period. This is called the pre-tribulational view, or the pre-trib view for short. The second view is that the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation. This is often referred to as the pre-wrath view. And the third view that we'll mention is that the Rapture takes place after the tribulation. This is called the post-tribulational or the post-trib view. There are some other uh, theories about when it takes place, but they do not war in our time today. They don't hold any water. For these three theories, there's solid arguments. There's decent arguments for all of them, or it wouldn't be an in-house discussion. We don't divide on this issue. You believe the rapture happens at a different time? I don't hate you. I love you. We're still Christians. We're united in the core doctrines of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Let's fellowship together. Let's debate it. Let's have some fun. But let's not break fellowship. Many people agree on these things, or disagree, excuse me. And there's decent arguments for all three views. Although I would say, the argument for it happening in the middle tribulation, often called the pre-wrath view, uh, there's not much for that one. It generally says, well, the wrath of God in the tribulation doesn't start till halfway through. And so the Lord then takes us just before that wrath. But I think if you read the book of Revelation carefully, you'll see that it's wrath from the beginning to end, the tribulation period is. It starts with the Antichrist being revealed. That is part of the wrath of God on earth. They long for a leader, a man other than Jesus Christ. Part of the wrath of God is he gives it to him. So back to the question of do the rapture and the second coming differ when they occur? There's only one possibility for them occurring at the same time, and that's if the rapture happens after the tribulation. If the rapture happens after the tribulation, the pre-trib view. Now, we already know for sure, indisputable, undeniable, that the second coming happens after the tribulation period. That's explicit in the Bible. So if the rapture happens at that same time, Uh, it's just a little nonsensical to me. Here's what I mean. It's very clear that the rapture is a movement of the saints from earth to heaven. And that the second coming is a movement of the saints from heaven to earth. So what that would mean essentially is that the Lord catches us up to meet him in the sky and then we hang a U-turn in the sky. He says, quick, get on your horse. And then we come right back down. It it doesn't make any sense to me. I I don't understand then why there is a rapture. There clearly is one, undeniable. There is this event separate from the second coming. But if it happens just before, it seems to serve no purpose. We go up, we hang a U-turn, get the horse and come down. Besides that, then where's the time for the marriage supper of the Lamb? We already read in Revelation 19, we're chilling having the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in Revelation 19, by the way, we're already in heaven, the church is there. How did that happen if the the rapture didn't already take place? So in my mind, it's hard to understand the pre 
trib, or excuse me, the post-trib view, it doesn't seem to make sense. The view that makes the most sense to me, and again, I don't hate you if you hold a different view. I'm not going to tell you to leave the church. We could do all sorts of stuff together. No big deal. I'm just telling you that the view that makes the most sense to me, scripturally, is that the rapture of the church takes place before the tribulation period. I'm going to give you three basic reasons why. These are the simplest reasons I could possibly think of. There are many more. And if you go to our website and download some of those other teachings, I go into much more depth about it. I also recommend to you a book we have at the book table by John Walvoord called The Rapture Question, which will explain each different view and then argue effectively for pre-trib. But I'm going to give you the three simplest, no-brainer reasons why it seems that the rapture, us going to heaven with the Lord, must happen before the tribulation. Point number one. The tribulation period is described explicitly in the book of Revelation as the wrath of God. There's no escaping that. We're not going to take time to read it right now because I'm running out of time. But listen, explicitly in Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, in Revelation chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, in Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 and 7, and in Revelation chapter 16, verse 1, it says explicitly that what is happening on the earth is the wrath of God. It says it explicitly without question over and over again in the book of Revelation that the tribulation is the wrath of God. Of God. Now, God pours out his wrath in the tribulation on those who are unrepentant. Please understand, please follow my logic here. That if you're a Christian, what was accomplished for you on the cross was that Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins. And in so doing, he took upon himself the wrath of God for you. He was the propitiation, Romans chapter 3 says, or the sacrifice that satisfied the righteous standard, judgment, and wrath of God. So for the Christian who has accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the wrath that was there for our debt of sins has already been poured out on Jesus. So if you then go into the tribulation period, which is explicitly the wrath of God poured out on an unrepentant world, that would mean that God is double wrathing you. Jesus took your wrath and all of it. He said, to tell us I paid in full, it's finished. But if he were to put you in the tribulation period, which is the wrath of God poured out on humanity, then that would, listen very carefully, that would nullify the work of the cross. Nullify the work of the cross. People often offer the, um, suggest the idea at this point of, well, maybe we go into the tribulation, but God just protects us from the wrath. There's nothing in the Bible anywhere that proposes that. That's pure speculation. There's nothing that proposes that. Listen, rather, to what the Bible says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 says that we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that in Jesus, uh, who he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. God demonstrates his, love, his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The whole point of the cross is that we are saved from the wrath of God, the penalty of sin, and brought into relationship with God. It's very clear. And we've already demonstrated in the book of Revelation that the tribulation is the wrath of God for the Christian. He is kept from the wrath, saved from the wrath, and delivered from the wrath. And so Jesus says to the church in Revelation 3.10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world. Just doesn't make any sense that God would double wrath his bride. It nullifies the work of the cross. Amen? Very simple. Point number two. The reason why I believe the tribulation must happen prior, or the the, uh, rapture must happen prior to the tribulation is because it is not consistent with God's character or history to punish the righteous and the wicked alike. It's not consistent with God's history or his character. The tribulation is God's judgment on the unrepentant. If you're a Christian, it's because you have repented of your sin, humbled yourself, and asked Jesus Christ to save you. When you do that, you become righteous, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And it is not in God's character to punish the wicked and the righteous alike. We see this pictured in the Old Testament in several places. Noah and the flood. God sent a flood upon the wicked, but those who were righteous, he preserved them in the ark. He did not just wipe out righteous Noah and his family along with the wicked. That's not in the character of God. He does not deal out judgment indiscriminately. We see it in Israel in the Passover in Egypt. God did not just indiscriminately take every firstborn. Those who applied the blood of the lamb to their homes were protected and spared from the wrath of God. We see it even with Rahab, the prostitute, in the destruction of Jericho. That she was preserved from that destruction. Her being righteous as relayed to us in Hebrews chapter 11 because of how she dealt with the Israeli spies that came into the land. We see it with Lot and his family and Sodom and Gomorrah. God said, I am going to wipe Sodom and Gomorrah off the map. And Abraham, God bless him, Lot's uncle begins to pray to the Lord in Genesis 18. And he says just before verse 25, he says, Lord, will you indeed sweep away the righteous within the city? Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? The premise of his whole argument is, God, you don't do that. You don't just kill those who are righteous in yours when you wipe out the wicked for their rebellion and their refusal to repent. That's not in your character. That's not in your nature. And Abraham, if you read the rest of Genesis 18, bargains God all the way down to 10. Lord, will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there's 10 righteous? And the Lord says, yeah, there's 10. Which, by the way, is why Jews require 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue is from that passage. Now, We read in Genesis 19, the fruit of Abraham's prayers with the Lord. It says in verse 15 of Genesis 19, When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. Notice, 
up. Take your daughter and your two wives. The angel said later in Genesis 19, verse 22, seven verses later, hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive where you are to go. The angels who were delivering the wrath and the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah, and Sodom and Gomorrah deserved it. The angels who were delivering the wrath and the judgment said, Lot, because you're righteous in the eyes of God, we cannot do this judgment thing until you're gone. It is not in the character or the quality of, the God, to, to, of God to slay you along with them. So God, God doesn't do that. It's not fair. That's not right. He's a righteous judge. Nowhere in Scripture, when judgment is from God, do we find the righteous being judged along with the wicked. And so it follows. If God were to remove those who by His blood He has made righteous, the church, the bride, you and I, If he were to remove us before his wrath, the tribulation came, then that would be totally consistent with his character and scripture and history as we see it in scripture. If God were to not, as some propose, and if God were to let his righteous go into the midst of his wrath and judgment, then that would be an abrupt about face in the character and workings of God. It would be something unprecedented that he hasn't done before, that he lets the righteous be slayed with the wicked in the midst of his judgment. It just doesn't make any sense that God would do that. And the final point, very simply. The rapture is spoken of continually in the New Testament as being imminent, meaning that it could happen at any moment. I want you to see this illustrated by the words of Jesus so clearly in Mark 15. Please go there. Mark 15. Mark chapter 15. Did I say 15? How about 13? I mean, we could do something with 15, but I prefer 13. Mark chapter 13. Now, Jesus is dealing with the last days here in Mark 13, sort of a parallel to Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And he's going to speak about both the second coming and the rapture. He's going to speak about both of them, just separated by a few sentences. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you realize that that's not at all abnormal. The Old Testament will speak of prophetic events that are sometimes separated by hundreds or even thousands of years in one breath. The Old Testament will relay them. So we're going to see Jesus here in the same discourse in just a few breaths speak of both the second coming and the rapture. Now he starts speaking about the second coming in verse 24 of Mark 13. He says, but in those days after the tribulation the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory now it's very clear from the words of jesus that the second coming is preceded by definite signs as we spoke of earlier He says it's after the tribulation. That's kind of a big sign. He says that the sun and moon cease to give their light. That's a pretty obvious sign. The stars start to fall from the heaven. That's pretty clear. And the second coming, it said, every eye sees it. Every eye sees it. It is overt. The whole world sees it. Whereas to a certain degree, the rapture is covert. We're caught up in the the sky to meet the Lord. But what we see here 
is that he speaks of the second coming as being clearly after certain things. So that is to say, if you, for some God-forsaken reason, you didn't repent, you haven't asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, you go into the tribulation period, if you see these things start to happen, you know, oh, okay, this is the time of the second coming. Here it goes. It's clear. Now compare that with what, the Jesus, with what Jesus says about the rapture as we move down to verse 32. He says, But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time is. It's like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, at cock crowing, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Now, it's very clear here that either Jesus is talking about an event that is different from the second coming, or he contradicts himself and is schizophrenic or confused or a liar. You choose. I'm pretty sure he's speaking about two different events, the second coming and the rapture. One, he says, I'm telling you exactly when it will happen. After the tribulation, when the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars begin to fall from the sky, 1,260 days after the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple, I'm coming. And then he says, and not, again, not unusual again for the Bible to mention these things in one breath, Then he says, of this event, nobody knows the day or the hour. Be on the alert. You do not know the appointed time. You don't know when the master is coming. He may come suddenly. Don't be caught asleep. Now think logically with me. If you're a Christian and you're in the tribulation and you're reading your Bible, there's no way that you're asleep. The wrath of God is being poured out. Water is turning to blood. The stars are falling. Armageddon is unfolding. Uh, unfolding. You're not going to be asleep. It would be ridiculous for Jesus to say, you might be asleep. The only way that this makes any sense is if the rapture is imminent, meaning it could happen at any moment, even now. It could happen at any time. Nothing has to precede it. And so then the exhortation for you and I on those three very clear points of the rapture happening before the tribulation is that number one, we are to comfort one another with these words, as it said in the last verse of 1 Thessalonians 4. This is to be wonderfully comforting that the Lord is coming for us at any moment. I mean, isn't that great? That means this is as bad as it gets, man. Is life a bummer for you? It's only going to get better. The Lord is coming. And he's going to catch us up into heaven and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Do you miss a Christian who died? You're going to see him at the rapture of the church. The dead in Christ shall raise first and we shall be caught up into the sky to meet them. This is wonderful. It is the Lord delivering us from the wrath to come. That is why it is called in the book of Titus chapter 2 verse 13, the blessed hope. That's how we should refer to it. That is biblical. It is for the Christian the blessed hope or the happy hope. The thing that we look forward to, the thing that we say, oh, Lord, come today. Is anybody with me? Do you ever find yourself saying, oh, Lord, today, come today? We should comfort one another with these words. The second point of application is this. Back in our text of Colossians, if you could remember 56 minutes ago, it said, therefore, in verse 5, 
Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. In other words, therefore, because the Lord is going to be revealed and will be revealed with him in glory, live a godly life. It says it this way in 1 John 3, 3. Those who have this hope in themselves, that is a hope of his rapturing us, purify themselves even as he is pure. Let me say it this way. When Jesus comes, and you don't know when he comes, could be any moment now. When Jesus comes, you don't want to be caught with your hand in the cookie jar, right? What do you want to be doing when the Lord comes? Do that. I want to be serving him. I want to be living a life of purity and holiness and generosity and kindness. That's what I want to be doing when the Lord comes. He might come at any second, so I should live that way, the Bible says. What do you not want to be caught doing when Jesus comes? Don't do it. Consider yourself dead to those things of the old life. Lay them aside. Do not do them, for the Lord is soon to be revealed, and we with him in glory. And the final point of application is this. He could come at any moment, so please be busy about his work. Please be doing something for the kingdom of God. He's given you special and unique gifts. He wants to use your life. Don't be consumed with the things of this world, the things that are on earth. Set your heart and your affections and your mind in the heavenly. Seek first the kingdom of God and these things will be added unto you. The time is short. The Lord is coming. Don't you think that we should be about his business? Amen. Lord, thank you so much. I am so excited. Your word is so awesome. Lord, I cannot wait to hear the trump and the shout of the archangel. I cannot wait to see you face to face in glory. And yet, Lord, we know that you tarry because you desire that none would perish and you're so merciful. You're not slow about your promises, but you're waiting for more to get saved. So, Lord, make us about your work. Make us about the gospel. Send us unto the nations and unto this nation and onto this coastline to represent you to preach these wonderful truths, to communicate these things and to see men and women saved by your grace. And Lord, I pray together in all humility with my brothers and sisters that if there's any evil way in us, any impurity, anything that ought not to be here in light of your soon coming for the church, oh Lord, refine us. Holy Spirit, convict us now. Bring us to that wonderful place of repentance where we can lay aside those things that are just encumbering us, where we can just lay them aside, be washed, be renewed, and be refreshed in your presence. Lord, give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts, for you are coming, Lord.